0: So, you know, as I just kind of feeling and seeing and experiencing things that are going on just almost daily, you know, it's kind of in keeping with this kind of unsettling, troubling theme of Seminar 3, The Attacks of America, that we've been studying the last three, four weeks now in our Healing of of America seminar. So, you know, remember the first four weeks of our... uh, a seminar one was God's hand in building of America. And we talked and we learned about the miracles of God in the establishment of this land, that God is a God of miracles. I love to study miracles nowadays in the scriptures and throughout history because it reminds me that look, if we have faith in miracles, God can move mountains. And it feels like some of the things in place in our country is just mountains. And we just wonder if we can ever roll it back and, and you know, climb this mountain and overcome it. But as we study the miracles, we're reminded of course, with God, all things are impossible. He is a God of miracles. And so I love that seminar one and seminar two, we studied the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. So if we want to know how to make America great again, we go back to the time when America was great, when we were living under these constitutional principles, when the free markets were operating the way they were supposed to, the natural supply and demand and prosperity economics. And so this is why we study because then we know how to, uh, you know, prime and and learn these principles, and then hold our elected officials fire to the feet, and get them steeped in the founders wisdom. And so we can go back to the, the time when America was working the way it was intended to. This is why We study the Constitution from the viewpoint of those that, that, you know, struck it off by the hand of God and that it was working. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, how in the world do we get in the situation that we are? Well, we began to veer away from those principles. and, And what were those attacks? What Were the entities and organizations and groups that wanted to disparage the Constitution and the reputation of our founders? So the last three weeks we've been talking about, you know, the attacks on education, these godless atheistic educational reformers, Horace Mann, John Dewey, the attacks on the moral fiber of America in the 1900s as the courts got involved and took out prayer and god and bible reading and even pledge of allegiance is a controversial things in some school districts around the country and then the actual attacks on the constitution and the the reputation of our founding fathers they were degenerates perverts hypocrites uh, sexual deviants you know those kind of attacks billions of dollars spent on attacking the reputation of our founders because we can if they can get us to think that these are the kind of men who established established America, we certainly won't study what they gave us. And then the attacks actually on the Constitution with uninspired amendments the Fourteenth Amendment that's been misinterpreted—that was the basis of same-sex marriage in 2013. You know, that's not what our, you know, what they intended when they gave us the Fourteenth Amendment right after the Civil War to protect citizen rights of of black citizens, and then the Sixteenth and the Seventeenth Amendment. What that has done, and even the Twenty-Fifth Amendment—that presidential disability—how we actually have in our Constitution uh, the ability to remove a, a president. And put into office someone that hasn't even been vetted or voted on by the American people. And boy, as you look at President Biden, you can see how that 25th Amendment could do some real harm if, if, if eight out of the 15 members of his cabinet deemed him unfit and the vice president initiates that. Uh, Harris, Kamala Harris could pull him out of office and then she would put on in her own VP and then we have people that are running our country that we haven't even voted on. So the 25th Amendment is, is just fraught with peril as well. So these are some of the attacks on the Constitution. And then today, woo, I feel like I'm talking a mile a minute, ladies. Are you Are you keeping up with me? Today is Section 4, the attacks on America's role in America. Who are these master planners? Who are these people that fundamentally wanted to shift us away from what our founders gave us and what was their motivation? Now, mamas, there are 21 pages in this section, so I'm just not really going to be able to cover it very fully. I'm just going to give you an overview. So please go back and reread this in the next 48 hours so you can kind of lock in some of the things I'm going to briefly touch upon. Okay, so let's turn. We're in our third seminar, section four, the attacks on the Charter of Freedom, number one, America's manifest destiny. When our American founding fathers established this nation, they sensed that what they were doing was much greater than just setting up a new government for America. They actually felt like they were fulfilling a God-given stewardship, which they would call manifest destiny, that they felt they had an example they had a responsibility to be an example and a blessing to the world. And, um, uh, Principle 25 from the 5,000-year leap. These 28 principles that our founding fathers shed changed the world that they pulled upon to establish this land. That's exactly what Principle 25 says: that the United States has a manifest destiny to be an example and an and a blessing to the entire human race. All right. So this is what they had hoped by forming this first free modern society. John Adams, they had high hopes of creating a government that would be a model to the governments, uh, to all the world. Remember, they wanted our Constitution to be our greatest export. They wanted other countries to model their constitutions after ours. And they have, and we'll talk about that next week in the the solutions. And might I just remind you, next week is going to be a glorious seminar, number four, because we actually started to finally talk about hallelujah solutions. And so um, our founders felt that America was destined to become an example. And so they knew that we had a responsibility to kind of be a vanguard. for the moral and political emancipation of all mankind. This is legitimately how these men felt. And as you read and study their writings, that's very clear. And they were godly men that revered natural law, God's law. And they understood in, in that beautiful scripture in Luke where much was given, much was going to be required of them. Uh, to be a light on the hill. John Adams said, I've always considered the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and designed by providence. In the same spirit, James Madison said, happily for Americans, happily we trust for the whole human race that they pursued a noble and new A noble and more new course. Thomas Jefferson said a just and solid Republican government maintained here will be a standing monument, an example for the aim and imitation of the people of other countries. Join and join with us. Our revolution and its consequences will ameliorate, that means improve the conditions of men all over this great portion of the globe. This is what our founding fathers expressed as they uh, were describing this this new government that they had established. And John Jay, who would go, uh, one of our founders would go on to become the chief justice of the Supreme Court, the first chief justice and started the Bible Society. He said, the American people have been literally thrust into an amazing accumulation of fortunate circumstances which obligate them to determine whether or not a body of approximately 3 million human beings could deliberately and by calculated design organize themselves into a free nation. The possibility of immediate and tangible success gave that whole generation a feeling of obligation and a sense of mission, which they felt compelled to fulfill as pioneers on the frontier of political science and prosperity economics. This is why they called it their manifest destiny. Okay, that was a quote from John Jay. And so even though the founders wanted the American experiment duplicated in various parts of the world, they didn't want it implemented in a dictator dictatorial or forceful manner. They didn't want to control the world. And because they knew that in order to maintain this Republic based on God's law, people had to stay morally uh, virtuous and, and strong. And the only way you stay morally strong and virtuous is to look to God and to have religion in your life. And so otherwise, you know, countries and they'd seen it throughout the course of the world's history that You know, civilizations become powerful. They want to continue to conquer and amass more territory and and terrorize others through war. And that's not what our founders wanted to do. They wanted to bring what God had given them, these ideas of principle of liberty and freedom, and bring that to other countries and let them prosper and grow and have a, a, a beautiful life. And so the founders wanted to be a good example. And they referred to this manifest destiny as being a city on a hill. And President Reagan, when he was governor of California in 1974, Governor uh, Reagan um, had a speech that was uh, entitled uh, uh, you know, a city on a hill. And he, um, he talked about that governor of uh, the um, Providence of Massachusetts John Winthrop in 1630, when he stood on a little ship, uh, the Arabella, looking out over this Massachusetts coast. Now, this is Reagan evoking John Winthrop's words. And John Winthrop in 1630 said, we will be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people will be upon us, And Reagan invoking that, he said, we cannot escape our destiny, nor should we try to do so. And of course, we would know Reagan would go on six years later to become president in 1980. But in this 1974 speech, he said, we are indeed, and we are today the last best hope of man on earth. So the founders desired to coordinate with other nations, not conquer but to consolidate, but, but, but not to consolidate, but to coordinate, all right, not to, not to consolidate or conquer, but to coordinate with other nations. The founders knew that they could not meddle in the affairs of other nations because that would be a dangerous thing to do for an independent country. Thomas Jefferson pointed out, we should have commerce with all nations and alliances with none." Let that be our motto. In fact, this is, um, I think I said that Manifest Destiny Principle was 25. It's actually 28. It's the last principle. Principle 25 is Thomas Jefferson's quote, what he just said, that we should have peace and commerce with all nations and entangling alliances with none. That is what our founders felt, that if we made alliances with other countries, those countries enemies would become our enemies. And not that we had even done anything to them, but because of the alliances that we are making with other, we would assume they're enemies and that could be dangerous. They knew that was dangerous. So uh, Jefferson said, we should avoid implicating ourselves with the power of other nations, even in supportive principles, which we mean to pursue collectively. They have so many other interests different from ours that we must avoid being entangled with them. So as the United States emerged on the world scene in the 18th century, American leaders took a united and fixed position against entangling alliances. This was the founder's doctrine of separatism, okay? So it's different from the modern term that we use of isolationism. 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 <laughs> the latter term, isolationism, uh, implies complete seclusion from other nations and being detached or incubated, isolated from other nations. Now, our founders didn't want that because how can we be a light on a hill if we, how can we influence other people if we're completely shut off from them? So what our founders wanted was kind of the opposite They wanted us to avoid alliances of friendship with certain nations because we would would make them enemies of other nations in times of crisis. But they wanted us to be uh, peacekeepers, commerce, they wanted us to be peacekeepers among the nation, not policemen, which you have seen we have evolved into in in later years. George Washington explains it this way in his farewell address. He had served for 20 years, America. He served for eight years as a general of the Revolutionary War. Another eight years as the president and and time before the Revolutionary War. And in between him becoming president, he continued to serve this country 20 years. He would step down in 1797. And about a year and a half later, the Lord would take him. He was probably just weary. His mission had been completed But in his farewell address, oh, Vivian, you know, I always cry when I talk about uh, George Washington. But his last words before he stepped down as president, I love this quote. It is, uh, let's see, letter number E in my book. He said, observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct. And can it be that good policy does not enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period, a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people, always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. So this was his vision and his heart as he stepped down. This is what he wanted America to be to the other nations of the world. It just makes me think, where are the George Washingtons today? <laughs> you know, God really did rise up. I think some of the finest and best man he, men he had along that little eastern seaboard in the 1700s to do what they did. And so George Washington was well aware of the natural tendency to classify certain nations as friends or enemies. And he felt that in the absence of political, military, or commercial hostility towards the U.S., every effort should be made to cultivate friendships with all. You know, he said, he said here that, you know, there should be temporary alliances. They might be justified for extraordinary emergencies, but other than that, harmony and liberal discourse with all nations are to be recommended by policy, humanity, and interest. That's what George Washington said. And he even warned you know, even when it comes to commercial policy, we should still try and diffuse and diversify by gentle means the streams of commerce by forcing nothing in order to to give to trade a stable course to define the rights of our merchants and to enable the government to support them. So he's saying here, look, remember, limited and carefully defined powers to the government. Let the natural supply law of supply and demand of free markets dictate commerce. Don't let the governments get involved in commerce amongst you know uh, other nations and, and certainly the commerce clause within states as well. So I, you know, as you read these founders and what they intended, you're like, George come back to us, you know, and I think there's nothing wrong, mamas, to pray for the influence of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and these great men. Pray for them to watch over this country at this time and to protect us and to inspire the leaders that, that are in office today. I just think it can't hurt to call upon our founders to somehow come and tutor the leaders in office and spark something within those that are leading and guiding our nation. And so Thomas Jefferson reiterated these same principles. I won't read that quote there, but President James Monroe, who would go on to become the fifth president from uh, 1817 to 1825, declared this official position of our founders and he put it in the Monroe Doctrine. Have you ever heard of the Monroe Doctrine? And it basically just says, states that efforts by European governments, and I think governments in general, but at that point it was the European governments that were most prominent in the world. Uh, uh, In order for uh, efforts by European governments to colonize the land, because remember, uh, they were still kind of wondering if they could come in and take over and kick out this new little government. So if you try and come in and take over and invade again or interfere with the states in America, we will view it as an act of aggression at which will require our intervention. OK, so we will get involved if you come on our soil and 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 try to invade But also this Monroe Doctrine said, which was in keeping with what our founders wanted, that the United States would not interfere with existing European colonies nor in the internal concerns of other countries. All right. And so this Monroe Doctrine was going to be the official policy of the United States for really the first 125 years, that we are not going to get involved in, and get into, you know, the affairs of other people's uh, countries' business, unless they actually, uh, you know, afflict some kind of act aggression uh, upon our country. So we went from separatism, where we wanted to be the world's peacemaker, where we weren't gonna take a hostile posture unless we were actually threatened, to more of this idea of internationalism, where now we're going to become the world's policeman, And that is what we kinda of morphed into the last hundred years. And it all started in the early uh, 1900s under, Theodore Roosevelt. Remember, we talked about him last week. He wanted to be big progressive. That he was going to do anything that the Constitution said he couldn't do. He thought that's what he could do. He if it didn't say he couldn't do it, then he was going to do it. And um, and that was you know we kind of began to see leaders in the courts begin to abandon the constitutional principles of the original founders in the early 1900s, including even free enterprise and shift away from that which the founders had given us to more of a direction of uh, socialism, uh, where the power is going to be centralized and put into the hands of the few. And so these founding fathers of change is what they will be referred to in our seminar here, became known as master planners. And ultimately, these master planners wanted to set up a new world order. That that statement has been around for a long time. It it started in the early 1900s. And in order to accomplish their designs, as as well as their involvement in, in, in international affairs as well, Uh, they began to do some some things. It says here in our manual that there were about a hundred men from some of the top inner circles who began to represent these dimensions of power in the world. Three of some of the most influential men here in America in the early 1900s was Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, and John Rockefeller. And their organizations consisted of big dynasties, banking dynasties, and international enterprises, corporations that would get involved with these men. These these men all began to funnel their monies through uh, um, foundations, tax-exempt foundations. And these are organizations that, that you can put some of your money so you don't have to pay taxes as long as your monies are directed towards educational or scientific or charitable or religious entities. And we'll talk about what they did with some of their foundations. And they began to control and put their people in high offices in the government And um, the background story of these master planners is documented and explained in a few resources. The first one that they talk about here in our seminar is Tragedy and Hope. Have you ever heard of this book? It's written by Carol Quigley. And it's very big. It's over 1,100 pages and it's quite boring. I've just read sections of it. So I, I wouldn't recommend even getting it or reading it. But he exposes, interesting enough, these master planners, and he is in cahoots with them, so to speak. He belonged to some of their secret organizations. He was a professor Quigley at Georgetown. He's an author, he's a historian, Quigley is Bill Clinton took classes from him at Georgetown and Clinton was greatly influenced by uh, uh, Quigley in this book and his writings of a global conspiracy. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what is included in this book. But uh, there's an excellent review of this book so you don't have to read it. Look, if you just read this book, The Naked Capitalist, and it's by Kleon Skousen, and, and he just breaks down what these master planners did. They, they stripped down capitalism and began to recreate you know, they took advantage of, of capitalism to change the world and to amass power. They're self serving. So, this is, I would get this book in your library at some point to understand uh, how these master planners began to fundamentally shift America. And then they used some of the principles of communism, socialism, Marxism, communism. And so these are two good books to understand uh, why these master planners that use capitalism to amass their dynasties and wealth began to want to shut down the principles that brought them their very success. And then the Freeman Digest also contains interviews with a number of master planners themselves that were done in the seventies by Cleon Skousen. And that tax exempt book that I showed you contains that Reese report. Remember that Congressman in the 50s who was noticing an orchestrated shift in the moral court culture in America this anti-God, anti-American sentiment. And so he uh, investigated these organizations, these entities, these master planners, and he compiled his findings in the Reese report that was completely buried by Congress. And the White House uh, said that the findings should be destroyed. It never got out to the public because The very entities that they were investigating were the ones that these politicians were taking money from to get reelected. And so can you see how they didn't want these findings to come out in this Reese report? So 20 years later, the head investigator, Norman Dodd, kept the original copy and gave it to Cleon Skousen in the 70s, and it is included in this tax-exempt foundation. So if you find this at all interesting, You can get this at KimberCurriculum.org. So this is where you can learn about some of these master planners and these entities, but one of their own wrote the book on them, Tragedy and Hope, kind of proud of what they were able to accomplish. So what in the world would motivate these master planners to do what they did, these founding fathers of change? Many of these prominent Americans were advocating for a democratic, a democratic socialism. Are are usually thought of as capitalists. Andrew Carnegie, the giant of the steel industry, J.P. Morgan, who was, uh, you know, the railroad magnate, John D. Rockefeller, who became an oil magnate. These wealthy and successful American industrialists would turn away from the constitution and begin to embrace these more socialistic ideas. Now, why did this appeal to these men? Because what uh, this form of government socialism provided was a concentration of power over people and property. And so these men wanted to be able to crush their competition. And so it was self-serving why they did what they did. And uh, uh, socialism offered some distinct advantages to these master planners. By gradually acquiring the leadership of both American uh, political parties, it would be impossible to gain control of, uh, it would be possible for them to gain control of the policies of the United States government. And so the power of the government then could be used to gradually establish cartels. Cartels are like groups that are allowed to form of of manufacturers of supply or suppliers that they can fix prices and restrict and shut out all the other little competitors that are trying to come up and get a piece of the pie as well. And so um, we know that these men also uh, wanted to acquire control over the nation's money uh, system and this is what these master planners did. Remember, we talked about it in 1910. They met in a secret meeting off of Jekyll Island, off of um, Georgia. It was a secret meeting, and they they uh, got control these uh, uh, of the uh, of the monetary system of America by the formation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, system nothing federal about it it's it's owned by private bankers and there's nothing reserve about it because they took us off the gold and silver standard and they convinced congress to do this now remember i said if you don't want to read how the these master planners set up the the uh, federal reserve just get the Tuttle twin version of the creature i call it the creature of the creature of Jekyll Island. Now this isn't the creature of Jekyll Island Tuttle book, but they have one with pictures that explains these master planners and how they got control of our money. So uh, I got to get that so I can show the right one to you. But you know, I always like the kids version of anything because it helps me to understand it helps me to be able to teach uh, to my children and, and, to, and to explain it. Uh, without having, because most people don't want this kind of explanation of what the master planners did in getting control of our our money systems and forming the Federal Reserve. So um, anyways, they also, uh, you know, with the increased taxation that came with the 16th Amendment, remember the 16th Amendment allowed the federal government to come in and and tax people directly instead of the states deciding how they were gonna tax the people to come up with their part of the budget. So with all this new money that the federal government is taking in with the 16th amendment and these master planners were behind um, the 16th amendment, you can see how the executive branch began to get more and more powerful and more power began to be centralized in that executive branch and the master planners could influence one branch versus, you know, having to go to all 50 states and talk to everyone's state legislatures and all the members of the Senate and so forth, that was too much work. But if they could just, you know, get the power in one branch, they could begin to uh, put their people in that one branch or, you know, to influence that one branch. And so uh, the master planners were behind the 16th and 17th um, amendments. And then uh, we see here congressional investigations have revealed how these master planners launched their ideas for socialism. And, and those congressional investigations was that Reese report in that uh, committee uh, re, um, investigation in the 1950s. So we see hundreds of millions of dollars were channeled through their tax exempt foundations to provide gifts and grants to their educational systems. So what these master planners began to do is they began to kind of change the narrative of our history and our nation as they were funneling their monies into textbooks and schools and curriculums. And even if you go to Monticello and Mount Vernon and Colonial Williamsburg, these are all places that are close to where I live in Washington, D.C. And their plaques are everywhere. You know, the found the Rockefeller Foundation is the one that funded uh, Colonial Williamsburg and they even show a little uh, movie at the Rockefeller home if you go to Colonial Williamsburg they have kept his home there and I every time I watch that movie I'm like well he doesn't seem like such a bad guy but you know at some point he lost control of what he was doing and you know his children that came after him as you go, as you go to these foundations and you hear how they try and highlight slavery and the weaknesses, their weaknesses, they say of the founders. And all you have to do is go to uh, Monticello. And I mean, the, the scripts that these little tour guides work off of can't talk to you enough about all the illegitimate children that Jefferson had. And it clouds what he did, because you just think of him as like, oh, wow, yeah, what kind of a pervert was he to take advantage? And so they, they've they kind of, they've, they've changed history a little bit with their money and with our foundations and how they've kind of shaped and reshaped uh, and denigrated uh, our founding fathers, which I think is so interesting, you know, that it, it was their money that is is—is backing this. And so all of these heavily financed programs emphasized uh, you know a kind of a collective socialism system of this is how our future should be and the founding fathers are outdated and the constitution is obsolete and we talked we've talked about this the last few weeks and so maybe I won't cover that page so thoroughly but From then until now, every emergency as well has been used to increase taxes and strengthen the federal regulations and gradually focus the whole power structure of the government away from individuals and local self-control more towards a centralized Washington, D.C. And if we're (laughs) not seeing that, I mean, just look at our latest emergency last year with COVID, you know, how how we have seen that as an opportunity for the government to really begin to dictate what is safe and what we can do and what is prudent and how we're seeing that, you know, as they continue to just shell out great amounts, trillions of dollars of money to take care of us. And we're becoming more independent. We're not wanting to ask the questions and we're just doing what, you know, we're we're told to do, you know, all under the guise of this emergency of, of COVID. And so, um, how does this happen getting into world war one as early as 1909, one of the wealthy foundations uh, uh, as early as 1909, one of the wealthy foundations was emphasizing how much more rapidly they could change America's social order. If we got involved with that war world war one and uh, Congressman Charles Lindenberg, who was the father of the Lindenberg who flew across the Atlantic ocean would go on to write um, how America was pushed into World War I. In 1923, Lindbergh, Congressman Lindbergh said, look, we elected a president, which was Wilford, uh, Woodrow Wilson, which we know it was not a friend of the Constitution or our founders. We elected him for a second term because Americans said we wanted to be kept out of war. And no sooner was he elected uh, than he used propaganda to put us into war. And he said, we did a more unstatesmanlike thing. There was never a nation that did a more unstatesmanlike thing than we did when we entered that World War I. We came out without establishing a single principle for which we entered so even though we were only really involved for a year or two, and I don't know so much about World War One, but it, it looks like by design, there were certain entities, these master planners that wanted us to get involved, because what it did is it began to put us on a path of transforming our government. Because shortly after World War I, uh, Lindbergh talks about a planned depression. Did you know we had a depression from 1920 to 21? No one ever talks about it. Five million people were thrown out of work. And it was, uh, Lindbergh wrote a book that deliberately described how this depression was planned uh, to the advantage of these special groups, these special interests. He didn't know what they were called, but they're going to be called master planners. And then um, a few decades later, have you heard of the great economist Milton Friedman? He would win a Nobel uh, prize in economics He actually, um, in a series of TV shows, uh, uh, exposed how the Great Depression in the 1930s had been promoted and deliberately prolonged by the bankers in charge of the Federal Reserve system. So these master planners, again, were, were weaving these booms and these busts. They were beginning to control our economies um, uh, with the federal reserve system, Milton Friedman, uh, would go on to become an advisor to president Reagan. He advised Margaret Thatcher. He was a, stalled, uh, a stalled, uh, uh, by many nations, Chile, I- I- Iceland, Hong Kong. He taught at the university of Chicago. Thomas soul was one of his students. And so, um, it's interesting how he exposed some of the, the master planners, uh, uh in our history at this time. So World War II comes along and it breaks out and Americans didn't want to get involved in the wars because at this point we hadn't really been involved in too many wars, you know? Hadn't been involved in World War I for long. We didn't really understand, you know, what it did but it opened the door for some fundamental shifts and changes. So uh, a man by the name of Jay Reuben Clark who was an undersecretary of state and ambassador and constitutional writer in 1930. So World War II went from 1939 to 1945, and we resisted getting involved until the attack on Pearl Harbor. But in 1939, he talks about why we should stay out of World War II. And he said, um, he said, if we can demonstrate our love for humanity, our justice, our fair-mindedness, then we shall be... um, we shall then be where we can offer mediation between the two belligerents. America, let it be the great neutral. We will become the peacemaker of the world with her manifest destiny if she lives the law of peace. So, you know, people will say, well, wait a minute. We were justified to get involved with World War II because the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And, you know, as I, I studied that, Roosevelt all along wanted us to get involved in World War II and Congress was not having it. And according to the Constitution, it is Congress that is supposed to declare war. The president can't. So behind the scenes, we meddled in the affairs of Japan. Did you know this? Uh, between China and Japan in those early years. Roosevelt didn't have the votes in Congress to get involved. He was probably getting pressure from the master planners to get involved. And so he put a trade embargo on Japan, which began to decimate their economy. So they probably viewed that as an act of aggression, what we were doing to their economy. So to retaliate, they bombed Pearl Harbor. And then when the Americans saw that bombing, then they felt like, okay, now we are justified, let's get into war. And mission accomplished, we got into war. And so, you know, just imagine, um, uh, you can't help wondering how much happier, maybe how much more peaceful, more prosperous the world would have been if the United States had been following a policy of separatism as the world's great peacemakers instead of internationalism as the world's policemen and so we did get involved and then we began to get involved almost one after the other with wars the korean war the vietnam war the gulf war desert storm afghanistan iraq we're reaping the whirlwind of our involvement In Afghanistan, remember that we've been involved for 20 years in Afghanistan when 9-11 in 2001 occurred, George Bush 43, George W. got us involved. And the reason we got involved, obviously, they bombed our towers, I guess you could say, okay, yeah, that's an act of aggression, we are justified in getting involved here. And why we chose Afghanistan is because we believed at the time, 20 years ago, that Al Qaeda training cells were being harbored in Afghanistan. And we actually thought bin Laden was hiding out in Afghanistan. And we would come to learn it was actually Pakistan and and bin Laden would ulti- ultimately bin Laden would be killed in, uh, under Obama's administration in Pakistan, but the intel that we had said it was Afghanistan. And so what did we do 20 years ago? We invaded Afghanistan. We replaced the Taliban, their government, we kicked them out, we put a new government in, and we tried to do nation building and get them to live under the principles of freedom that we knew had worked and for 20 years we did that we spent over two trillion dollars in Afghanistan trying to instill into them a democratic form of, of government so I had a brother who was a retired police officer that served for seven years during the Iraqi war over in that region and he said he, he tried to train their policemen their police force and his observation was that those people were not ready you know for centuries the people in the middle east had been living under rulers law and we were not going to change them overnight by just flooding them with money and and we continued to meddle in their affairs you know so it's one thing to uh, punish a government for harboring terrorists okay so that's initially what we did our involvement as we got you know looking for these al qaeda cells and bin laden but it was another thing to stay there for twenty years and try and do nation building and tell them how their governments should work because ultimately that creates resentment. And what happened after twenty years here in America? We just lost the heart and the will to you know, and the monies that we were spending in there. So we pulled out, and within almost minutes, you know that uh, the the capital. Cabal was, um, fell and the Taliban entered in. These are harsh, violent, horrific men. And, you know, we saw, we've all seen the pictures in the newspaper of the airports and, uh, you know, the presidential palace. Did they bomb that presidential palace? They're sitting in all the, you know, the chairs. And, and these little allies that helped the American troops for years now, we didn't fully... Rescue them, and and uh, you know for all, all those uh, allies that aided our little American troops. You know, you hate to think what's going to happen to them. In the newspaper today, in the Washington Post, because they're very aware of not um, putting President Biden in a negative light, it actually says Taliban promises peaceful transition. So they're actually trying to make it seem like they're actually really not bad guys. They look civilized right there having a press conference. It kind of reminds me of that Black Lives Matters, you rioting, you know, the little reporter, there's fire in the background. And she's saying, well, it's really mostly a peaceful uh, event, you know. And so the Washington Post is trying to make it seem like, you know, these guys are really friendly guys, and it's not going to be so bad. And they're going to work with the little Afghanis that helped us and so this is an example girls of us meddling in the affairs of nations you know it's one thing to retaliate when there's acts of aggression on our country it's another thing to stay there 20 years you know and try and uh, create a new nation for a country that maybe wasn't even ready or didn't even ultimately um, want it okay girls So I'm just, uh, oh gosh, okay, we probably have about 15 more minutes to talk about um, organizations that were established by these master planners. The master planners, they began to create secret societies, all right, uh, and let's take a look. There's a little diagram here. It's called the Round Table. This Round Table organization was established in 1909. 1910 is where the master planners met on Jekyll Island okay so they were a part of this round table and this secret group with their secret combination of other groups that that around the world that spawned off from this national round table the secret round table group and um, it, it, it carried forward its conspiratorial schemes and the United States front their group was called the Council on Foreign Relations the CFR have you ever heard of that it it, it exists today and um, Mr. Quigley he really spells out all these groups he tells you about them he tells you what they're doing you know but no one's willing to read this book so everyone's pretty much in the dark But um, anyways, the the Council for Foreign Relations in America uh, was created 10 years later in 1921. A lot of Rockefeller's money was involved in forming this group. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, a think tank that specializes in U.S. foreign policy and international affairs was founded in 1921 in New York City. And it's the promotional arm of this new world order. That's ultimately what they're trying to uh, get us to. And it is a secret society. They meet uh, often, uh, once a year. A lot of these organizations seem to meet once a year and they push out their ideas for their own purposes. There's about 5,000 members that are part of CFR. They're high government officials, they're scholars, presidents of universities, lawyers, businessmen, Hollywood stars. If you were to Google, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you know, they're highly recognizable names that sit on this council and their strategy is uh, simply, uh, uh, you know, to, to work towards consolidating power uh, away from what you know the form of, of republicanism that our founders gave us and I, i'm going to have you read through a little bit of, of what their strategy is but it's creation of international groupings of power and the establishment of socialism which was dreamed up by crazy karl marx i mean if we knew you know karl marx died a lone man in a little one room uh, apartment in london with nothing But his ideas had taken root and taken hold. And nearly every member, nearly every secretary of state in the 1900s, both Democrats and Republicans have been a part of the CFR. So, you know, Donald Trump was an interesting player because he was a part of this ruling elite where the power is in the the hands of a few. He was a part of this oligarchy, it's called, Uh, where um, the elites, where a few people run the country. But what he did is he began to expose these people, these entities, and he turned on them, he exposed them. And this is why they hated him. This is why they could not tolerate or accept him uh, winning um, again, because he was in really in their way of establishing this new world order. And so, um, Another uh, secret society is called the Trilateral Commission. Have you heard of this, of national uh, and foreign? Uh, and they're making national and foreign policy. And they're, once again, they're a non-government, nonpartisan group uh, that was founded by David Rockefeller, the son of uh, one of the Rockefellers in 1973, to foster closer cooperation. Uh, um, cooperation with Japan and Western Europe and and the U.S. Former members of the Trilateral Commission, Jimmy Carter, Jeffrey Epstein (laughs) is associated with this group. Walter Mondale, Michael Bloomberg is a part of the um, former mayor of New York City, Henry Kissinger, uh, General Petraeus. And um, there was an author who who was one of the trilaterals, Brzezinski, He was a Polish-American political scientist. He served in uh, Carter's administration and he actually taught President Obama at Columbia and he campaigned for Obama. Isn't that interesting? And he would die in 2007, but he actually published a book that talked about the goals of the trilateral commission between two ages, it's called. The goals here is to piecemeal gatherings of nations into a one world order. I mean, they're not not even trying to hide some of this. It's an international council to deal with political issues, to enforce peace, educate on all levels. Education is to be handled by an international body. Distribution of information is to be in the hands of this international committee. This is the goals of the Trilateral Commission that actually reports to that secret group, the round table, um, to set up an international body to control the production of goods, economies, to set up international control, to control credit and finance the money, to call for greater sacrifices for Americans, this collectivism that we're seeing right now. <laughs> with this some of these COVID ideas where the greater good everyone should get the vaccine and wear a mask you know this idea of the sacrifices notice that their emphasis is never on freedom but on internationalism there and, and then uh, another organization that spawned from that is the aspen uh, uh, um, group the aspen institute have you heard of them And I won't go into that, but they're, you know, they're this enlightened leadership and with open-minded dialogue of people and names of people that you would recognize. But, you know, their goal, again, is to be a part of this new world order. So just be aware of these groups when you hear their names. They are nefarious. And then the Bilderberg, have you heard of the Bilderberg meetings? About one-third of the the people that belong to the Bilderberg groups are politicians, and then two-thirds of them are finance and industry and labor heads um, worldwide. And the Bilderbergs had their first meeting in 1954, and all their meetings are closed. You will sometimes hear about them but they really don't like people to know when they're meeting because people assume they're doing bad things about a 100 only 150 people are involved with the Bilderberg meetings they're extremely influential people with hidden agendas powerful elites moving our planet towards a new world order so, girls, did you know there was a Bilderberg meeting at the Sierra Pines Resort uh, two months ago, June of 2021? Um, There, we didn't have a Bilderberg meeting in 2020 because of COVID. But they met at the Marriott in Chantilly, Virginia, about a half an hour from my house, right outside of DC. In 2002, 2008, 2012, and 2017, they meet in 2018. They were in Italy. 2019, they were in Switzerland. And so, you know, they, they make a pretense of publicizing their meetings. So if you go online and Google it, it will tell you about their meetings and even acknowledging maybe who's been invited so that the presence of so many world-renowned personalities will not quite look so uh, conspiratorial or mysterious, um, at least But once they depart from their meetings, they go to the four corners of the earth and then they carry out quietly their adopted goals. But the world is never given the slightest hint as to what has been decided in these meetings. So just be aware that there are entities, and then the Pugwash Conferences uh, started in 1954 in Nova Scotia, Pugwash, by a very uh, wealthy Canadian-American multimillionaire. And these were scientists, nuclear scientists, that uh, began to gather in the 50s, 1954. And one of their main goals was to disarm the United States. And they will say that much of the, uh, you know, intellectual uh, brain power from uh, from these nuclear scientists from around the world, and these pugwash conferences were the ones that invented the internet, and they were a part of um, uh, the the knowledge that that launched in 1957. That's Sputnik. Russian satellite. Remember um, how I said that some of um, Americans' intelligence was behind that? It was the combined scientists, American scientists, Russian scientists, China scientists that all kind of colluded in these pugwash conferences. And we allowed it to be launched from Russia because they knew the effect that it would have in America was, oh, we're falling behind. Oh my word, the Russians, you know, it was right after World War II and the Cold War was, you know, taking, we were so afraid of Russia. And so we allowed the government to come in and become even more involved in how we were going to allow them to educate our children. They pull out God, constitution, put in more advanced curriculum, anti-God, and, and we've allowed you know, the government to infiltrate uh, our education. And some of that had its, can you, can you follow that? Uh, the origins in some of these nuclear scientists that uh, were a part of that Sputnik launch in 1957. You know who else was involved in this uh, Pugwash conferences was Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State under Nixon. Well, if you study him, was really not a friend of America or the Constitution. Did you know he was a Jewish man, and he actually was excommunicated from the highest rabbinical court in America? It tells you a little bit about what was going on in his life that his, you know, his, his, um, you know, that court wanted to excommunicate and not be associated with him, which I thought was interesting. So it talks about the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They did more, um, uh, spent more money, um, uh, (laughs) trying to get the hands, uh, uh, the power in the hands of people that were going to force peace upon the world. And he has such a great story. He started out as a little poor little boy, a bobbin boy making a dollar twenty. But when he sold his holdings to J.P. Morgan and retired. Um, and uh, his trust began to um, uh, develop. Let me just read this here. He sold his holdings to J.P. Morgan for nearly half a million dollars he therefore retired and created numerous charitable trusts to lay foundations for a future world government where there could be enforced peace. The idea that contributed most to the idea of a new world order was the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A lot of his money went to support these secret organizations. And all look at uh, it lists m- many other organizations with nefarious motives. So, mamas, you just need to be aware. You don't need to know anything more than, you know, what it says here. I don't believe you can read these books if you want, but there are these secret control groups spawning from this kind of round table. Maybe they call it something different. And it's all highlighted in this tragedy and hope book, you know, to, um, so if you were to read this book, it would kind of help you to understand the utter contempt within the network of leaders, the contempt that they have for ordinary people like you and me and um, uh, how these human beings are treated in masses, helpless puppets on an international chessboard where the giants of economic and political power subject them to war revolution. I'm not going to follow that thought here, but, but just know that these are the master planners and they have implemented devious plans into the everyday lives of American citizens. And we didn't really even know it okay so now you know a little bit about these entities and then it talks there's a section here about the history of executive agreements and treaties that have uh, taken us away from constitutional provisions you know to keep us safe from these entangling alliances and nefarious things transpired with the yalta agreement the, um, roosevelt and and stalin and and the, russia still holds us uh, Bind uh, holds us to some of these agreements that were made uh, after World War II and the League of Nations. Our Congress wanted nothing to do with that. W- Wilf- uh, President Woodrow Wilson wanted us to, and, and we wouldn't. But after World War II. Um, Uh, It it made it easier for us to accept, okay, maybe we do need a a United Nations type entity. And so the United Nations was formed and the United Nations after World War II is the epitome of a tangling alliance's organizations that make political alliances completely opposite of what our founding fathers wanted and and how we were kind of manipulated in, uh, because of these wars into thinking that we needed these entities to help us ensure a world order uh, and peace for the future. And then the Panama Canal, did you know, uh, President Carter sold, uh, gave away a $20 billion property, um, the Panama Canal. And how that w- was, you know, completely unconstitutional through a treaty. He did that, and also how NATO was another treaty uh, that uh, you know um, we formed, and and that again is another entangling alliance group. They do not have the backs of America, and uh, NATO was fraught with peril. And so, go through and read and read a little bit about those. Um, to have maybe a little bit more understanding, but just understand these entities exist, these people, these organizations exist, and they're working behind the scenes in secret. So, It has once been said in our conclusion here, uh, it was once the great American dream to make as many people as possible. This is what our founders wanted, a part of that great middle class because it was recognized to be the backbone of our society and the most important segment of the population in maintaining a progressive, self-governing, secure and freedom loving people. Okay, that sounds like you and me, you know. But obviously, if you're trying to set up a virtual dictatorship like these master planners are trying to do, this group of freedom-loving, faith-revering, patriotic people would be viewed as an enemy, all right? Because they know these kind of people, you and me, mama, would resist a dictatorship. And we're feeling like the executive branch is turning into a dictatorship, telling us what to do. And so, you know, we're we're, we're living this every day almost. We're living this particularly, you know, um, how our rights have been infringed upon uh, with COVID. And so it makes me think that we have to, we freedom-loving people have to keep pushing back against this tyranny and this kind of, a dictatorial type of government that we're seeing um, happening right before our eyes. You know, just, uh, I hope every day you can think about how did I push back on the infringements of my rights today? Uh, Yesterday, I went and met some two girlfriends for lunch, and I, and in Washington D.C., there's a mask mandate indoors. You're supposed to wear a mask wherever you go, and I'm just not wearing my mask. I walked in that restaurant. No one said a word to me. I went to the mall last night with my uh, 13-year-old daughter to get some school supplies and husband. On every door, mask required. Uh, we didn't wear our masks. Went into about six stores no one said anything to us my girlfriend said all my friends are just not we're just pushing back we're just not we're gonna make them tell us they have we have to wear a mask and and they're not people aren't because I think people are getting tired of it my girlfriend went to the grocery store yesterday where masks are required in Washington DC and she said the only thing that was said to me was when I checked out the man cashier told me to have a nice day So don't just think that you have to go along with some of these restrictions and mandates right now. Uh, Last night, I wrote a letter to the superintendent of that school teacher that went off two days ago uh, against parents and was cursing up a a blue storm. I wrote that letter. And yesterday, my husband wrote a letter to the headmaster of a school that my daughter goes to saying, we do not want masks. We do not want our daughter to wear masks. And that headmaster called up my husband and said, I'm having a lot of parents call me, I'm going to do everything in my power. So this is how we can push back. We don't just take it sitting down but you know it's important girls as we've studied i know seminar three is heavy duty stuff and i know it feels like there are mountains before us. How can we move these mountains? But we are God-fearing women, and we know that God is a God of miracles, and he can move mountains. But it's important to understand these attacks that have taken place in the last 125 years, the attacks against the education, the attacks against the moral fiber of our country, pulling God and Bible and prayer out of schools, these Godless educators that are held up as great men in institutional uh, uh, you know, universities today. We have to understand the attacks of the Constitution by these uninspired amendments. The 14th Amendment is bad news. The 16th, the 17th, the 25th, they're all bad news. They have disrupted the balance of power. They've grown the executive branch. So when you systematically know how we began to become unhinged and dismantled seminar three, we begin to understand what it's going to take to repair and to restore it. And we're going to talk about the solutions of, of repealing a 16th amendment and a 17th amendment of eliminating a federal reserve and allowing, you know, the supply and demand of the markets to take back over again, to give the power back to the people. That's what we had in the first 100 years, 125 years in our country. We need to decentralize the power that is in uh, the executive branch. Because right now, it's so easy for the master planners to manipulate, you know, governments because they just have to go to a few people, you know. Seminar 4, just know, mamas, is going to be full of solutions and healing and hope and ideas. And I can't wait to discuss and learn together with you because you're going to be thrilled to know that there are solutions, peaceful solutions to restore the founders dream for america and we don't we, we won't know what they are unless we educate ourselves so i commend you for showing up each week because as you learn some of these ideas and and suggestions you will talk about them with your husband you'll talk about them with your children and your neighbors you will begin to question your school board about you know what our founders did and why it was so successful and why aren't we doing that today and what we should be doing now you're going to begin to put into office men and women that are humble and willing to learn and 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 become steeped in, in our founding father's wisdom and then we'll be able to exact change at the state and even the national level and so you begin to catch a vision of how this can be girls and so the best is yet to come. We're gonna uh, we're embarking on seminar four, so girls, I I hope you won't feel like you need to get a candy bar just to kind of, you know, uh, decompress from what we've <laughs> learned today with seminar three. But there you have it; those are the attacks on America. This is why we're in the mess. Well, this is why we're in the boat that we are. And so, um, girls, let it empower you. Don't let it discourage you. You know, we have to understand how something got broke in order to know how to fix it. And so I think we have some ideas why we are in the situation that we are with seminar three. So please go back and reread this section. There was a lot of it that I just scammed through, and you might be you might might have had a hard time following me and like, what is she talking about? go back and read, you know, about NATO, read about, you know, the the League of Nations and and see for yourself, you know, and and then it will kind of sink in some of the things that I briefly reviewed today in our class. So there you have it, girls. I'm going to turn the time...